welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, sex and intimacy coach Carlene joins us for a conversation all about unlocking your erotic creativity. Together we talk about the birthright to sexual expression, going from zero to penetration, and rethinking intimacy in our relationships. Y'all, these are just like prime topics for my areas of interest, so this was such a fun conversation with Carlene where we talk about, yeah, how to have better sex, how to be more connected in sex, and how can we have more intimacy in our relationships with platonic and romantic partners? I mean, these are the conversations that will hopefully bring us to more connection and more pleasure in our lives. So I hope y'all really enjoy today's episode and come away with a couple of nuggets to be thinking about how you want to show up in your relationships and with your sex life. Y'all, tune in. Hello, dear listener. Before we hear a word from today's sponsor, I wanted to invite you to contribute to the first study on relationship anarchy. If you are a relationship anarchist, I would love to hear your perspective on a couple of short questions that I have linked below in the show notes. My doctoral dissertation was the first study on relationship anarchy, and I'm continuing this research through the survey below And there's also the option, if you would like, to join me on the podcast to explore a live conversation that will be shared with all of the Modern Anarchy community. Completely optional, whether you do just the survey or looking to join me on the show, please click that link below, share it with all of your relationship anarchist friends, and I look forward to sharing the results from this research study with you sometime in the future. I'm sending you all my love. And now a word from today's sponsor. Um, I recently saw a quote that I think is like kind of sticking with me as far as the work that I do, which is, and it was, it was one of the Bettys. Betty Dodson, Betty Martin. I think it might have been Betty Martin, now that I think about it, but I could also be wrong. But the quote was about, I can't remember what specifically it was in reference to, but it was about like the right to sexual expression as opposed to just like sexuality and I've been really thinking about that yeah I've been thinking about that a lot and just that that concept Mm -hmm. um so one of the things that I really try and dig into and emphasize though in the work that I do is teaching people that you know digging into sexuality is an opportunity in eroticism is an opportunity to it's it's not a script and it changes every time and while that can feel really scary it's an opportunity for creativity and that like our erotic experiences are it's just a creative expression Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and so seeing that quote I was like oh okay (laughs) like the idea of of sexual expression being a right that we Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. Um, and that more room needs to be made for that 
then, <laughs> so other work that I do, which is unpaid work, is that um, I do work with Cascades Abortion Support Collective. I'm a collective mm-hmm. member. Um, obviously, things have changed for us. But thinking about uh, the right to abortion and birth mm-hmm. control also mm-hmm. being a way to express ourselves without pretty profound consequences if we don't want to have those consequences. Absolutely. So anyway, those things have all been kind of wrapping up for me. Sure. And it's, and I mean, it's totally connected, right? I mean, I've definitely thought about this and haven't been able to even talk about on the podcast about the, uh, the stressors that is this new dynamic for tons of people. Right. I mean, having sex now becomes an increased stressor of what happens if I get pregnant. I mean, it's changing the whole dynamic, too, of like the mental experience as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So <laughs> I know. It's like, do we even want to go down that path? That path is dark and sad. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, the politics. But I think, um, how did you get into this work? What really propelled you to start doing this sort of advocacy and is coaching, is that the word that you might use for your work? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I have long, had long wanted to be a sex worker and I have a long-term, um, nesting partner. And he and I spoke with each other, or I spoke to him and was like, this is something that I wanted to do, but it was after FOSTA SESTA. And he said, it's too bad. We can't find a safe way to do that. Turns out I ended up going into sex work anyway later on. So I do, I do both. But, <laughs> yeah. but at the time, you know, we were trying to navigate that and I, or he was trying to assist me in navigating that, I should say. Obviously, it was my it was my journey to navigate, and he was just like there to support me. Okay. But um, he, you know, he said that, and it kind of sent the wheels turning. And I had seen, so I'm trained as a surrogate partner, okay. and that's the framework from which. So I don't necessarily do strictly surrogate partner work because that works with a client and a therapist, mm-hmm. and so. I don't necessarily work with therapists. I'm open to it. I have that training, but a lot of times it's just me and the client, Mm -hmm. but I used the framework because I like really, truly believe in the framework, but I had learned about it from a TLC show. I want to say it was called weird sex, but I think that's wrong because I don't think it would use the word weird. But anyway, I had seen it like three years before and I was like, Hmm, okay, let's look into it. So I used the Google machine. (laughs) <laughs> and found my way to um, a training outside of Los Angeles. Mm. And so that's that's how I got started. And then the rest is history, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. thinking for the listener who's never heard this term, could you explain a little bit what a surrogate partner is? Yeah. So a lot of folks will potentially have heard the word or the phrase um, sex surrogate. And I'll explain why that has changed in a minute, but they're the same thing. It's the same kind of work. Mm-hmm. And uh, what a surrogate partner does is that we work collaboratively with a client and a therapist, and we're working to achieve some kind of erotic or sexual goal. And it is <clears throat> the reason that it is called a surrogate partner now, as opposed mm-hmm. to a sex surrogate 
is that the work has come to encompass so much more than just sexuality. Mm. We're in a relationship with our clients, one that very much it is a, you know, a, well, it's a therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. It's a relationship of affection and sometimes love. And there is, of course, a slight, I don't want to use the word power dynamic, but maybe knowledge differential. Sure, absolutely. Um, so it doesn't look completely like, you know, a traditional romantic relationship, mm-hmm. but it's, it, it is in a lot of ways. And all of that intimacy and trust is the foundation upon which the therapy, though the work actually like happens. The three kind of principles of surrogate partner therapy mm-hmm. are relaxation, communication, and sensate focus. And we take folks through a series of exercises. The framework is always about systematic desensitization. So we start with things that feel much more safe. And then eventually we're kind of slowly stretching people right into, you know, um, more sophisticated conversations right around. So like teaching them more sophisticated ways of communicating Mm. that includes, you know, more sophisticated ways of exploring our bodies right and enjoying and sinking into that sex uh sensate focus yeah Mm. so that's like a bit of of what we do yeah definitely so these are to clarify these are people that you're paired with yeah well they so they usually reach out to me or they're they will speak to their therapist it really depends i've had referrals from therapists um doctors that's increasingly becoming a place where folks are reaching out to me yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. And then also folks just find us, mm-hmm. you know, they scour the internet for us. Sure. Absolutely. And so then could you tell me more about the role that you play within that relationship for the client? Yeah. It's complex because it's, it's unlike any relationship. I think anybody else, like it just, it exists in a very, an interesting space in that I am both their guide, but that but we are partnered, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. In in a way. And everything is collaborative. So while I make the suggestions, like I think this is what might be the next the best the next best like thing, you know, these are the couple of exercises I think will suit, you know, your growth mm-hmm. during this work. They also get to, I mean, I always run it by them a couple of times actually usually the end of the first the the previous session and then talk to them check in and the beginning of the next session Mm -hmm. and they get to I mean also that's a practice in like consent right and informed consent but um they always get to be an active participant in like this feels good or like you know I would like this and we can negotiate that Mm -hmm. so it, it models the way that like an aspirational relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Should look like where there's checking in, good communication, um, talking with each other when we hit like pain points or shame, and ultimately like the relationship has to end, and being able to make sure that we can end it in a way that is loving and caring is something that largely falls on the surrogate partner to make sure to like be responsible for. Absolutely. I mean, this sounds like an incredibly healing process for the people that connect with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And there's usually crying Mm. (laughs) throughout. 
Mm. Yeah. I mean, this is incredibly beautiful. I'm, as you're saying this, is this, you would consider this sex work? No. So I actually okay. do sex work separate from that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I wouldn't consider it sex work. I yeah. think that sex, sex is, is present and mm-hmm. sex is available at a certain point in the progression. Right. Sure. And that can take a while. It's certainly not an offering in the beginning because there are foundational skills that we are trying to teach. Sure. But a colleague of mine, she once said, sex is, is, is an option, but it's not the focus. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, intercourse is something that can happen at the end and other types of sex, for sure. Sure, yeah. Um, and that, that is something that kind of is distinguished ching it's a distinguishing mm-hmm. quality that's what i'm trying to say sure, sure. um from other modalities is mm-hmm. that we can actually there is not just permission granted but a lot of times folks are looking to explore their sexuality together in a broader container maybe that's mm-hmm. what i'm looking for Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think this is great. I mean, yeah, within the therapy container, it it can be a much smaller container with boundaries there. So I think it's great that we have, you know, other people in this role to facilitate, you know, this healing, this connection, because all of our healing and connection happens in relationship with people, whether that's a therapist, whether that's, you know, a loved person in your life, a surrogate partner, like these are the things that heal us relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. I mean, my initial thought is that the like legality piece of that, like in with doctors referring to you, how has that gone? I can imagine that that's pretty complicated. It isn't. It isn't. Okay, it's yeah. really interesting. I think you know, one of the things that folks get most hung up on, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is a broader concern that has, has happened in the last 20 to 30 years, actually probably a little longer than that. But, you know, this this concern about liability, medical malpractice, things like that. Yeah. Um, and that's really been drilled in by education institutions. So people are very afraid. And I understand that impulse. One, there are just ways around it. I've had therapists say like, hey, it might be worth you looking into circuit partner therapy and just leaving it at that. But, and that's like them protecting their own, themselves. Um, However, it's not necessary to even do that because there is no explicit law in any state. A lot of people get a little bit confused about California because when Kamala Harris was the state district attorney, is what her position mm-hmm, was. Mm-hmm. Uh, she basically said, I have no concern for prosecuting this because, you know, it's between two consenting adults. It's for a therapeutic purpose. No. And people will take that. A lot of people have come to me and said, well, that means it's legal in California. That's technically not true. Mm. However, it's not, not, it's not illegal sure. in any of the states. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that there is not a, like a, you know, a quid pro quo. The work that we're being paid for is to guide people through their eroticism. And it's not explicitly, you're going to pay me and we're going to do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? 
you know, people will say it's a legal gray area, but really, I mean, the best way to say it is like, it's not legal, but it's not illegal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. It's yeah. very confusing. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Which makes it tricky. And this is probably why it's not, you know, maybe as well known, at least for me, this is the first time that I am hearing of it. Right. And so I think this is part of why, you know, things get suppressed like that. And I, I think it should be legal that we're able to engage in consensual sex that is paid for. I think that is healing. I think all that stuff should be legal when it's through to consenting adults. So I'm happy at least there is this little gray area where we can do the healing work that is needed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So take me then through your average client, maybe like what is the typical concern you see when they come in through the door? Walk me through that experience. So historically, I would say, and there's much to talk about this and why this is the case, Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that predominantly we get, we have in the past seen clients that are cis men. Um, who are either struggling with early ejaculation or, you know, difficulty with maintaining an erection. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of standard fare. That's what people are used to um, increasing, like used to hearing about. And a lot of that is like, and we have discussions about this because there are male surrogate partners as well, mm-hmm. who both work with either, you know, gay male partners or work with, you know, straight female partners mm-hmm. um and you know increasingly it's changing but when I first entered around 2016 it was still kind of a, a place you know we were having discussions around people who are not cis men not realizing that, that sexuality is their birthright too mm. and so predominantly it's been straight cis men again having difficulty with ejaculation, having difficulty with maintaining an erection, mm-hmm. but that's, it's changed so much now. Mm. Like we have clients who are gender fluid, who are transitioning. I'm increasingly seeing people with religious trauma. I'm that's also me. seeing clients. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for that conversation. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, and actually there's, Somebody who a lot of times, depending on what the what their goal is, there is somebody here in Portland that I do refer to because her specialty is religious trauma. And she's not a surrogate partner. She is a somatic sex educator. But I will I'll be the first to say that I am not the most equipped with that. I did not grow up deeply religious. Now, depending on what their goals are and what they need, sometimes it does make sense to see mm-hmm. me. But yeah, religious trauma is a big one anymore Mm -hmm. and a lot of increasingly and this could be because I am a fat sex coach and I think sometimes people feel really comforted by that but a lot of body stuff body dysmorphia feeling a lot of medical trauma from you know past experiences Mm -hmm. and like really and not feeling connected to their bodies in an erotic Mm -hmm. way yeah anymore there's not as much of a typical client. <laughs> I love that, right? right? No, that's great. I mean, who would want to have the same client over and over again? Like it's kind of boring in and of itself. So I'm glad you have that diversity. And also that it seems to be, I think part of me wonders, you know, given the social conditioning to anyone that's not a cis heterosexual male, you know, 
there's a lot of pressure there to not explore your sexuality, a lot of shame and conditioning. So it's exciting to hear that other people are coming out to get help to get these services. I think that's a sign that our society is moving towards a little bit more space for all the other people that have existed forever, right? Absolutely. So then your eroticism, how do you help people figure out what that is? What do you, wh- where do we take them? What do you do? Because that's such a big question. So much creativity, so much individualistic nature in that. Where do you even start when you're confronted with these challenges? Honestly, we use the Sensate Focus exercises as a good foundation because what it does is it kind of destigmatizes just touch for your own mm-hmm. pleasure. With that as the principal foundation of just erotic exploration, we then invite people. So, like, I'll give you a couple examples of some yeah. sensate focus exercises. So, in the beginning, we start with like uh, touching objects, right? So, not even touching the body, and then we move to hands and face, which is tends to be very comforting. Um, although I get a lot of feedback that people find the face caress incredibly erotic, which mm-hmm. is very interesting or like sensual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like really deeply connective. Um, and I almost every client that I've spoken to is like, I know I'm not supposed to feel this. And of course, then there's the conversation around, you know, that is okay. You know, that is okay that it feels arousing. That's probably mm-hmm. very exciting for you. And I invite that and welcome that. Yeah. Um, and then we increasingly move to, you know, disrobing, doing a back caress, front caresses. Um, and then the kind of the place where we shift things is when we do the erotic body mapping. Mm. And that's that place to kind of explore our eroticism because we're just using like our hands our you know, I actually, when, once we get to like the face caress and the arms at the back caress and the front mm-hmm. caresses, you know, I use my face to touch them, but mm-hmm. we're still not doing any kind of like lip contacts you know, no tongues, nothing like that. Sure. It's just, we're, we're keeping it simple mm-hmm. <laughs> so that folks can really, we're retraining the brain instead of to be thinking about everything else that we could be thinking about and worrying about satisfying the partner. We're retraining the brain to like reconnect with our nerve endings and just feel into our body. So once we've kind of got that base down, then we do the erotic body mapping. And that's the place where you can play with tongues you know teeth and touch different body parts and then that's kind of where the discovery happens and mm-hmm. people find you know funny little spots that are very thrilling to be touched or to licked or things like that and that's kind of the first introduction into that like erotic creativity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and I mean I'm thinking about that client that you mentioned too with the face caressing felt that sexual, you know, whatever sort of word we're going to use to describe that energy, but because of social conditioning that might have said that's not where you feel an erotic zone. I think this is part of the problem, right? Like there is more than the genitals that are erotic, you know, and can bring arousal. We need to spend time exploring that for each person, kind of exactly what you're talking about here of slowing down to have curiosity and explore the body. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you say the sensate focus too, because I I looked back because I have the book like right there and I have not actually flipped through it yet. Like I the first couple pages, then it's kind of like sat there. So this is my sign from the universe that I need to open the book (laughs) and look at it. But um, 
I think it's definitely something that at least I can relate to as a sexual assault survivor, right? Like this this uh, letting go or learning to reprogram your nervous system after having a traumatic experience with touch, right? So once you have that same sort of experience, your body's trying to protect you and it can flood that same thoughts, emotions, tensing up in the body and all that sort of stuff. So it takes time to help your nervous system relax back down so that you can feel. Yeah. And that's something that it's actually one of the things that I forgot to talk about was like we, a lot of the folks that we see do have sexual trauma. And what's great about this work, you know, I had a client who we took a really long time to get to any kind of touching. And then we did the hand caress and they couldn't, they would hover there. They, they seemed to be okay when I was touching them. Mm-hmm. They were nervous. I could definitely feel it. But when, so basically we take turns, right? So like I will be the active participant. I will touch their hand and then we'll switch. Mm-hmm. And when it was their time to be the active participant, they would get their hand like this far away, you know, like an inch away and then they would pull back. Mm-hmm. And it took probably six times of doing that. Wow. Like, get close and hover, pull back, get close and hover, pull back. And then finally they were like, okay. Mm. And then they could lay their hand. And even then they could only tolerate probably, I mean, usually the exercise is about 15 minutes each. Mm-hmm. And I think they tolerated about five minutes. And then mm. it was like, okay, I, I, that's all I can do right now. And that's okay. There's a ton of permission to take as long as is necessary. And it's what makes this therapy really, really incredibly effective. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, they've done a few, they're, they're kind of old, but there have been some studies that have been done. And the efficacy of this work is like 98.7% mm-hmm. effective. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's just going as slow as is necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like sometimes there's just not, or maybe just in general, there is not that container space to do this sort of work within our society. Where do you go to have this sort of help that we need after a difficult experience or trauma or any of the things that you mentioned? Yeah. And it can be really difficult to do with a partner. You know, I think there's so many expectations set and, and also you know, that I'm, I'm maybe like giving a hard time to partners, but on the other hand, if you're not equipped for that, that could be a lot to take on as, as a partner of somebody, you know, who's, who's dealing with these struggles. Mm-hmm. So to their credit, you know, it can mm-hmm. be very, if, if you don't have the skill set to do that, yes. how are you going to do it well and not like re-traumatize that person? Exactly. Exactly. There's a point where we know if we don't have the skill set, we might be causing more harm, right? So yeah, if your partner needs, you know, professional help in this, that is definitely somewhere to go. I'm thinking, you know, for the people that maybe might not need professional help, maybe a little bit like further back that need just general exploring of their eroticism. I'm thinking about the partner dynamics with that or multiple partners, right? Sometimes I feel like this thought that taking the time to slow down and do something like this to rework with your nervous system, feel things. It's almost not the sex that you imagine. It's not the sexy, oh my gosh, we're just in this throw of all and it just rolls. Like 
no, it takes this like slowing down to say, hey, I want to explore something, a lot of communication. I mean, this is challenging all senses of what we consider sex to be. Yeah, very much so. Um, and that can feel very unsexy. I mean, we're really like hemmed in by these rules that we that we see that like sex in order to be good is this like throw them down on the ground. I mean, that's one of the things that drives me nuts when I watch like te- like TV programs and movies is I'm just like, and you know what? Hey, sure. Sometimes it is that. Yeah. And that's, that's fun too. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, there's a lot of fun in like in the suspense, right? And the anticipation in moving really slow and like, you know, what's gonna, what's gonna happen next. Mm-hmm. Not, and by next, it could be today or it could be in a week, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And that, that, you know, building that anticipation. Um, also, the longer you go in like an activity, mm-hmm. the more buildup happens. Mm-hmm. And I think people forget that. Like, it's like, what's the fun and like a throw down 10 minute thing. Sometimes that can be a really good time. Yeah. But there's something to be said for an hour or a day devoted to that. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. like, Absolutely. So teaching that, like people think, I think we tend to believe that like, more is more, faster is better, etc. And understanding that, like, that's not necessarily the case, you know, and especially with our bodies and the way we feel, we've programmed ourselves so much to ignore so much of the sensation that we experience. And that's a, not a bad thing all the time. There is a level of protection that I think is necessary to move through this world, as it is now, especially. But staying in that space of protection all the time cuts you off from a lot of like lovely sensations. And so you're missing out on like lighter touch, you know, or low touch, things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes when you come in really hard, you can't, it's hard. Hmm, What's a good metaphor for this? I'm trying to think of something. Um, The parallels to food are always very similar to me, at least. And I think in terms of pleasure, like when you slow down to slowly eat that bite of chocolate and feel it melt on your mouth, it tastes different than when you swallow it down. Not saying one is better than the other, right? Like they're great. You know, sometimes you want to pop that M&M in your mouth and just keep going on with your day. But like there is a beauty to slowing down and letting it just like melt on your tongue. Absolutely. We actually have a a food sharing exercise towards the end. It's kind of usually after – like intercourse or something has happened. And that's something that we do is we actually, we feed each other, but we also take the time to savor the food. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's all related to mindfulness, right? Like when you slowed, and this is like on multiple levels too, of like even the practice of gratitude, right? Slowing down to acknowledge the things that you're grateful for and feeling that overwhelming sense of pleasure just from doing that practice. Slowing down to be with your food instead of texting so that you can actually taste it. And I think some of what happens with trauma, whether that be physically, emotionally, socially, all the stuff that we have to deal with. I mean, you can be in a sexual dynamic and not be present with the sensation, right? Because it might be too overwhelming or maybe your head is somewhere else. So like, I think a lot of this also, at least from my understanding, comes back to this practice of mindfulness, of slowing our thoughts down to be able to direct our focus to our body. Absolutely. Um, and so much of, I think, the world demands us to just carry on and continue and multitask and 
it is an act of rebellion to just not do that, to refuse. Yes, yes. Relaxation, slowing down is an act of rebellion in a capitalistic society that is trying to overstimulate you with just your phone alone. Talk about notifications, like bing, bing, bing. You know what I mean? Like our society is constantly trying to push us in that way. So yeah, to slow down, it's a privilege and an act of rebellion, you know, to be able to have that time. And I don't know, it's something I'm continually trying to practice because I feel like before you notice you've had your coffee, you're on to the next thing, you're just like, your nervous system's so high up that it it, it takes time to like slow back down. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's celebrated too. So it's really hard to be you know, slowing down is laziness, slowing down is decadence, right? Mm. Well, what's wrong with decadence? What is wrong with decadence? You know, who decided that that wasn't something that we all deserve so much more of than we get? Absolutely. And I know it was not one person, but... (laughs) Right. Absolutely. No, I'm totally with you. I think that if, you know my one goal in my life is to slow down enough that I enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? Like just slow the hell down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And especially with sex. I mean, that's definitely one of the bigger things that I think when we were talking earlier about the dynamics with your partner, slowing down, I mean, teasing, edging, getting close, pausing. I mean, these build up some wild experiences in the body that are so pleasurable and I think it's great to take that space. I mean, distance make the makes the heart grow fonder, right? All these sort of pieces where, like, it's nice to be there, but it's also nice to take that time, build, let it stretch out. And another thing I was thinking about was um, communication. A lot of those scenes you see in movies with these hot, steamy scenes where people just come at each other and there's no discussion of, you know, safe words, no discussion of what touch feels okay, and it just, like, happens magically. All right, that might happen in some situations and be great, but there is something so incredibly sexy about taking the time to slow down and communicate so you can feel safe in your body with the other person and, like, feel that full level of arousal that is possible with safety. Absolutely. And I, and, and furthermore, if you're going at, I mean, some of these like things that you witness are pretty aggressive and aggression and sex is okay. However, if you're having aggression and sex and you aren't communicating either beforehand or, well, I'm mean, really, ideally you should be communicating beforehand and in yep. the middle yep. and after, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, this can lead to physical injury. And it can be incredibly traumatic just because of the, like, pure logistics of, like, hurting somebody, you know? The average length of a vagina is three inches long. That's not very long. You just can't – we shouldn't probably just be beating the hell out of it unless we're okay that, that, you know, we're sure that that's something that that person wants. And so that it kind of concerns me when when I see that this is kind of what's being taught. And it's all predicated on this idea that, there is a formula to sex. And so of course I can't hurt them, even though I'm like throwing them up against the wall and like inserting myself into them without any kind of like anything beforehand, which would ensure that that would be something that would be comfortable. You know, all of this is like this formulaic belief, which is, and it's incredibly harmful formula because it's, it's just, 
ignores the way that the body naturally works. Tell me more. I am so with you. How does the body work and what should we be doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, we, I mean, we need to warm up, right? And, and that looks different for everybody. Yes. But we need to be able to be warmed up so that we don't cause injury, so that it starts to feel good as opposed to kind of mechanical. The word I used to describe it, if, if my body is not quite on board, especially internally, is it can feel kind of tinny. Ooh, and yeah. I'm like, that's kind of unpleasant. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not like painful, but it's, I don't like it. I don't love it. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> And a lot of that's because there's a lack of, you know, of that kind of, not even a total lack of arousal, but like we have to, we have to get it to a certain place. You know, there's kind of the beginning stages of like, that sounds nice. And then there's, but the body, it takes a while for the body to be like, oh, right, right, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is what we're doing. I'm on board, you know, and it needs gentle cues for that to happen. Not always, but you know, in general, like images in your mind are popping up, somebody yeah. brushes your neck and it's like, ooh, and then you're mm-hmm. on board, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's incredibly diverse, but you can't just go from zero to <laughs> penetration. <laughs> yeah, it's like how many times do we have to say that out to the universe before people start learning to yeah slow down, build the arousal, and it takes time for your genitals to fill up with blood and become engorged to enjoy penetration if that's what you want, right? Or any sort of contact. It takes time for your body to warm up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in like a, you know, a a kinky situation, in order to reach that kind of peak, whatever that is, whether that's, you know, um, being beaten on the chest or getting flogged or whatever it is you cannot just go in Mm -mm. all wild from the beginning you're going to hurt this person and Mm -hmm. probably very much upset them at minimum if not traumatize them and the body is just it's not prepared to be walloped like that from the beginning right you start Mm -hmm. easy and then you slowly ramp up with feedback from the person that you're doing this to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely it almost reminds me of kind of like music you know we don't come in heavy with the drums right at the beginning and I guess I you know as I was thinking about this metaphor some music does so let me say (laughs) that you know and there might be people that do like to be spanked right from the beginning right hard and that is what gets their body going but I just want to say for the most people, like, yeah, it takes time and like we're creating a song and a dance together. And if the drums hit like towards the end, once we build up that tension in the rhythm of the song, hell yeah, go for it, hit it. And it's going to hit so much better than trying to start out from the top, like just like going like that. And I think it's, it's wild for me to think about how you can literally have the exact same sensation, physical touch, right? And it creates wildly different responses in the body depending on how aroused you are. I think that's one of the most, it to this day shocks me Mm, Yeah, because I'm just like, whoa, we tried this. You know, I'll give an example. I have very sensitive nipples and Mm -hmm. that means a lot of times it's like the the gentlest Mm -hmm. touch is plenty, 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 plenty in the beginning, especially. But then depending on what I've gotten to, where I've gotten to, it's like, oh, somebody pinched in the beginning. And I was like, mm-mm. Yeah. And somebody pinched 
now, and I'm like, heck yeah. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and I'm still like, that's bonkers. Uh-huh, uh-huh, exactly. Which is, I think, why when a lot of people are experiencing sex that doesn't feel good and they feel so confused because, you know, they're doing all the things, it's like, well, maybe the arousal just hasn't been there yet. The physical acts you're doing are correct, right? But, like, the arousal hasn't been built there for it to feel like that yet. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's that kind of, like, jamming that more, more, more thing mm. that I'm, like, so reticent to do comes yeah. in again because it's, like, you know, uh, the kind of common lure around sexuality from magazines and things like that is like, yeah, just add more, add more, engage in a threesome, mm. be poly. Here's how, here's how to, you know, give a wild blowjob. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I guess, you know, and again, I have engaged in all of those things and I'm, cer- I'm certainly not, you know, but we don't stack polyamory onto something that is already scary and uncomfortable, right? We don't stack threesomes onto that. We don't, you know, like we have to kind of come back to the foundation again. Mm-hmm. And, and those things can be wonderful things when the conditions are right. And if the conditions are sex is just generally anxiety inducing to me let's not throw a third person in there that's we're not there yet you know yes yes absolutely if your nervous system's already you know overstimulated adding further stimulation is not going to help yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah so it's it's taking that time to slow down taking that time to explore your body and I think I don't even know what the statistics are. Like, you know, there is no research on this, but like how many people actually have taken the time to slow down and explore their erogenous zones without the connotation of like, we're going to get to penetration if that's what you do in your sex, right? And have the orgasm. How many people have slowed down to just explore, be curious about their bodies? I think I'm sad to say it's probably low. Yeah. Yeah. It's very low. Yeah. Is there any advice you would give to someone who is maybe hearing this and wants to do this? Maybe can't, you know, isn't in your area, doesn't know who to connect with. Is there anything they could do at home that could maybe start to practice this exploration? Yeah. So I do some homework assignments for Mm -hmm. my clients. Yeah. Um, And they obviously are very useful too for other folks. But um, really what I recommend are starting with breathing exercises practicing mindfulness and then working your way to sensate focus so giving yourself your own hand caress Mm. touching your hands noticing where you like to touch how you like to be touched in those places things maybe you don't like right and then but you know making sure that it stays focused so like it's always tough because when there's somebody there and I notice that maybe somebody's like thinking about something else and I can kind of feel it I can guide them so you'd have to monitor yourself yeah. and bring yourself back and be mm-hmm. like okay okay I started thinking about my day and what I need to do after this and like um I also suggest people who have pets pets are because you can co-regulate with pets too mm-hmm. which is really great and we know like research shows that if you have pets that petting them actually helps lower your blood pressure so you can do sensate focus and of course 
um, a lot of animals, uh, you know, there are aloof animals out there, but like a lot of dogs especially are just like, oh, you're petting me? Well, I'm never leaving. Mm -hmm. But closing your eyes and like petting the animal and noticing like, what does it feel like to sink my fingers into their fur? What does it feel like to touch their tiny little ears? Right? So those are some places to start. Yes. And then, you know, then you can start to move to maybe more erotic areas. But again, going very slowly, feeling all of the different spots, right? Yeah. You know, teaching that and people are like, this feels nice on my arm. Like, that's good. And then they go to the genitals and it's like, it just, it's, I always have to be like, or just use a finger. What does it feel like to just touch your frenulum, right? What does it feel like to just touch between your inner and outer labia? You know, not not smashing, but just like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yes, to slow down. I mean, and what you're talking about is, I think, important where you're talking about earlier about um, slowing down to even do this through petting a dog, right? I mean, this is talking about your ability to be embodied and to check in with sensation on multiple levels, right? Because we, at least personally in my own struggle, I am always up in my head thinking about things about work and stuff and I'm not tuning in to like, yeah, how does my hair feel on the back of my neck? But if I stop to focus on that, I can actually start to feel it, right? And I'm like, oh, that feels kind of nice as it jostles back and forth. But I think we forget that our brains cannot multitask, let's be very clear, cannot do that. You know, we do run some background stimulus to keep us alive and always kind of monitoring, right? Even when we're asleep, we're running our heads, but our attention cannot be multitasked. So in that moment, if I start to think too much in my head, I can't necessarily feel my hair. And so it's that process of being able to slow down your thoughts enough to tune into the embodiment to feel. And that's a practice you can do all the time. Walk outside, touch a tree. What does it feel like to touch the tree? Like this is the practice we're talking about exactly. Pets, slow down to start noticing. Um, one of my mentors um, had invited me just to bring my fingertip and run it along my hand and just check in to that sensation. And like, could it be erotic if I'm slowly caressing and like, you know, gently touching your hand? And I think the answer is yes. But do we slow down enough to check in with that? I love that, by the way. <laughs> that, that just touching your finger with your fingertip. Yeah. yeah. And it stuck with me. Yeah. Have you heard of um, the concept of forest bathing? Ooh, no, but I mean, I, I've got my notes right here. I am writing that down. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, um, forest bathing. I just learned about it about a year ago. And you go out into the forest and you, you're not on your phone, you know, and you just touch things. You feel the sun on you. Um, there's a lot of moss where I live in the Pacific Northwest. So you can just find beds of moss to lay in so like and I love moss I love the sensation of moss so wow. I'll just like lay in the moss mm. yeah it's being out in nature it does slow your heart rate down but it's another way to connect that's can feel very erotic right and there's the whole concept of like ecosexuality which at first I was like okay what is this <laughs> what are they doing like, 
I went and I, yeah, I went out and I didn't realize what I was doing this forest bathing, but I was like, I, I did it. And then I heard about, I learned about it later. And I was like, the first time I went and did that, I was like, oh yeah, this is an erotic experience for me. Like there's something about this that like feels, I, you know, I was just, it was so, mm-hmm. everything was stripped away. I had nothing to distract me. I couldn't go pick up my phone or my computer or ah. think of, I mean, I could think about my to-do list, but I was deep in the woods and I couldn't do any of it. Exactly. You know, <laughs> so like, I just, it, it almost, it made it easier um, to be like, well, what else am I going to do? Mm-hmm. going to go lean up against the tree, lay in the grass brush some of the pine needles against my cheek. Absolutely. And connect with your body. I mean, nature is literally a sensory playground. You know what I mean? I I teach yoga outside during the summer and just even yesterday teaching to feel the sun on your body and then the soft, gentle caresses of the wind, you know, and that unpredictable nature and the way that it can touch your skin is so soft and sensual. If you slow down to focus on it. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I am going to look up forest bathing because it's probably right up my alley. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm having this desire to ask too, potentially if you're willing to shift a little bit about what your personal relationship dynamics are like. I'm curious. You kind of mentioned Polly. I study a lot about non-monogamy. I'm curious if you could tell me and would be willing to share a little bit about what your relationships are like. Yeah. So, um, I've been polyamorous since a little after I moved to Portland. So, and it took me a while to get to, I realized how much as you know, in my twenties, um, I struggled with, there were so many things. I'm also an anarchist and like, I didn't want to admit to it for a long time because I was, yeah. (laughs) I saw the tattoo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you're looking, you, 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 yeah. Uh, the indications are all over my body, (laughs) but, um, I was like, this sounds really cool, but it's, it can't be for me. And I realized, you know, a couple of years afterwards that it was about not wanting to tell my family Mm. and have them be like, God, of course she's, she's doing this now. You know what I mean? So, but at some point, you know, I'm, my family's from Colorado. They live in Colorado. I was here and I could kind of do things without having to tell them. And eventually I did, but. You know, so I started exploring polyamory and I met my nesting partner. Well, I actually met him about the time that I came out as poly, but we didn't start dating for about a year. And when we did start dating, I said, you know, so I was single poly up until that point. And I said, you know, like, this is something that I feel really committed to. Uh, And he was like, he knew about this. He had been involved with Occupy Wall Street and the medics. A lot of them were poly. And so he was like, yeah, that sounds okay. You know, it is something that I have had folks approach me many times because I've been doing it now for almost, I don't know, for a decade, for a Mm. decade. Yeah. Um, Folks will kind of be like, I'm having some trouble in my relationship. I'm considering this. And I'm like, don't. (laughs) Like, you need to deal with those those problems first. Don't. You're not ready. And Mm. I'm like, and I, I think. I sing Polly's praises. I love, I do love yeah. it, but it is never a solution to relationship problems. And we had, you know, not that we had relationship problems, but he's a cis man who grew up in Wyoming. And mm-hmm. while he was pretty far along by the time I met him, 
he definitely like we had to have some tough conversations you know in the beginning you know we had to learn and both of us had to learn to communicate but like his ability to understand how how do I want to say this relationships for men romantic relationships I think for a lot of cis men are the replacement for intimacy the intimacy that they lack in other relationships and I was like this is too much pressure I don't want to be your everything this is ridiculous yeah like you you have to make male friends you have to make I don't care make make any type of friend you want I don't give a crap I just need you to not seek intimacy slowly with me and use me as your emotional support it's not fair to me you know what I mean and so there was that I think also new poly is really easy to be taken advantage of because you're so excited and enthusiastic and so we both kind of had missteps with picking <laughs> other relationships. Sure. And that took um, a good couple of years. And now I think we finally have more or less hit our groove. But currently I am only seeing him. Mm-hmm. I'm about to turn 40. Yeah. I think I'm starting to just slow down. And I, I am queer, but mm. so basically I just, men are always difficult for me. I got really lucky with him. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And everybody else, I'm too shy <laughs> to approach. So I just end up like, and he's much more of an extrovert. Sure. So he's out there kind of thriving and I'm mm. comfortable with it. It gives me a lot of time to myself. I do also have sexual needs met because I do do sex work and I do sure. have some yeah. kind of ongoing relationship with my clients. Yeah. I think it's pretty interesting because I think people kind of, they, they see a huge delta between him and I, as far as like, he has these like deep, much more like, you know, partnered relationships and folks have brought up, monogamous folks have brought up like, Hey, this seems kind of like not very fair, like to her. And so he one time was like, I just want to check in. And I was like, honestly, everybody comes to Polly for different reasons for, you know, more emotional intimacy for just general abundance in their relationships and for me it kind of is always sexual so if that need is being met in my work and I don't want to put in the effort like I'm fine yeah and so it's been really challenging not challenging but interesting to kind of notice how people perceive poly that isn't this like we all live together and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> we we each have two partners outside of each other a piece like you know yeah absolutely yeah sometimes there's like this sort of idea exactly of what you're saying right of like kitchen table polyamory where yeah everyone dates everyone everyone knows everyone and we're all sharing thanksgiving dinner together right rather than the ability to construct relationships that fit your needs, fit your partner's needs, the other people's needs in the unique ways that we are all unique. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of our dynamic right now. I'm sure you've heard of the term relationship anarchy. I have. Um, I don't think I've achieved it though. Because the idea is really about also prioritizing your friendships as much mm-hmm. uh, equally. And I think, uh, not that I don't, I mean, not to get back into capitalism, but I find that with my friends, we're always scheduling each other in and it doesn't have that same, you know what I mean? It does always kind of fall by the wayside. Mm. And so 
I, I don't believe that I necessarily practice relationship energy. I think it's kind of the ultimate goal for yeah. me, at yeah, least. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've achieved it. Sure, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I try to practice it, but I guess in that same way, I would say I haven't achieved it either, right? I mean... And here's where I want to push back a little bit on the ideas of relationship anarchy, right? Because, like, the idea is not having a hierarchy between our platonic, romantic, and sexual partnerships, right? But also, I think that hierarchy might not be necessarily in time and energy, but maybe in the intimacy that you can share with people, dare I say, because... I've kind of tried to think about this where like, say I I do start even just a business with someone and that's a meaningful relationship in my life. That relationship is going to take more time and energy than some of my friends might. And I can love that relationship, love my nesting partner and love my friends. But then like, I will never achieve relationship anarchy unless I do like 50, 50, 50, you know, like all the way across the board, which I don't think is reasonable, especially if you share things like a mortgage which means you sleep, you know, on the same, like that, that just the timing, like the variables, it is impossible to have a 50, 50. So like, would we never reach relationship anarchy? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, that's fair. Yeah. Or I see what you're saying. Yeah. Or dare say we have kids, right? Like if you choose to have kids with a nesting partner, that relationship might take up more time energy than I can have to devote to my friends. And so it's something at least I've thought about, right? Because like, yeah, the the value system is non-hierarchical, but like, what does that mean? I think that a hierarchy is inevitable and I think it's impossible to avoid a hierarchy depending on, yeah, if I start a business adventure, own a mortgage, maybe raise kids, whatever I do with these people, like we can't avoid hierarchy. Yeah, or at least concentrating your time in the places that, you know, makes sense to concentrate your time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I guess, not an expert yet. This is what I'm doing my dissertation on, relationship anarchy, so maybe I will say that very soon. But I, I think that it's important to think about, yeah, like, if, especially if you say that you think it's the most ideal relationship, but that you can't achieve it. Like, I guess, that yeah, I just wonder what gets in the way if, like, that's what you aspire to be. A feeling like it's maybe not there for you. It's tricky. I mean, all relationships, navigating all of this and what it means, but at least for me, what I've been trying to do is to be open to the level of meaning that my platonic relationships can have, not necessarily the time or the energy, but like the importance in terms of intimacy and what those people mean to me. Yeah, I definitely realize that I'm like, oh, well, maybe this is me getting once again in my inexperience, getting caught up in like the shoulds, mm. what I think ideally is to happen yeah with not without like acknowledging the the day-to-day reality of being a human (laughs) and then like prioritization is necessary especially in our relationships you know and like sometimes you just gotta spend more time with somebody yeah yeah yeah, absolutely I mean I think that's why it's important to have these conversations because we're like constantly changing it creating the language because there's not a lot of language I think for this new way to orient to people and relationships in our lives so part of I think the problem is we just don't even have language for these ideas at least that's how I feel half the time I'm like what are the words to describe what I'm feeling right now for you I don't even know you know so it's like trying to sit with other thinkers other you know people in the space like you to just like sit and get our teeth into these ideas and talk about it yeah Yeah. I'm curious too um one of the things that I think I've had a hard time with is with friends that are more normy, um, mm-hmm. yeah. as I do have some of those, I am careful with 
expressing love with them because I worry about how they receive that. And I think that also seems to get in the way of like kind of achieving that relationship anarchy is like, how will this be received if they're not, you know, tapped into this, this concept of relationship anarchy? Yes, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's definitely something that at least I've navigated through specifically as a cis woman with cis heterosexual men, right? So specifically also what you said earlier about men, um, cis men being kind of socially conditioned to not be emotionally available, meaning that a lot of that gets put onto your primary heterosexual partner. The second that I start to hang out with someone who's a cis het male, there's almost this sort of, oh, if we're getting close and she's expressing her love for me, it means that we're going to start a sexual and romantic relationship. And that is the only sort of intimacy that we can share. And one of my close friends that um, listens to the podcast, although I'm talking about him, that's kind of what happened when I first met him. He had never heard of relationship anarchy. And so like us just hanging out had this connotation of like, oh, is this sexual romantic? Is it? And it took like a lot of conversation to be like, I don't feel those desires, but I love you and I care for you so much. And I want to keep building the intimacy that we have. But it, it's it's difficult to navigate because I think people, we have schemas of what this level of closeness means and what it means for our future and what our relationship's going to look like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so yes, I'm here to say yes, because you're, it's, it's, it's completely novel territory. I, I would agree. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. Yeah. And good on, good on him for sticking around and like trying and having that conversation. Yeah. Like, you know, rejection can be, it, it can, one, it can feel like rejection, right? And two, we don't really teach people to cope with that and then, and not disappear. So that's a lot of emotional maturity on his part. Yeah, I'll be sure to like shoot him a text and be like, you're awesome. Love you. you know? <laughs> because it's a good point. It does take a lot. And like, yeah, to stick around that and like feel secure after a potential rejection like that can be really tough. And I think this is exactly like the work that is trying to rethink, re-understand our relationships with people and what's possible in the world once we take off these monogamous heteronormative scripts and to rethink what sort of intimacy we can share with people. And I think that is how we find fulfilling relationships, a fulfilling life is allowing the intimacy to build in whatever way that feels natural and not putting caps on it or drastic expectations on what that is, right? It's just letting it grow for what it is on its own. Yeah. Yeah. I took a compassion immersion class and I want to bring it up because it was an amazing class. Yeah, it's Julia Frodal is her name. Okay. Um, and she still offers them. But one of the things that she asked us to do, I can't remember if it was in the first Compassion Immersion or the, mm-hmm. the second one. But she asked us to um, write letters to our friends expressing our love for them. And one of them was with a cis man who is married and we're very close. And I couldn't send it. I was too afraid of what that might get, how that, not so much that he would take it that way, but I was concerned about what that might look like. Cause they're pretty, you know, they're monogamous and, you know, while they're both anarchists they're I don't even know if they know about relationship anarchy. <laughs> and it was this very intimate letter of just like, this is why I admire you. And I think that you're an incredibly 
amazing person. And, mm. and I just like, I kept being like, just give it to him. And I couldn't do it. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. Cause I was so concerned about the implications of like what that might feel like to him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, this is not like me professing my love in a romantic way. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a level of vulnerability that I had not experienced in a lot. I, I know a vulnerability that I, clearly was incredibly not comfortable with because like obviously I, I like I trade in invulnerability right? like that's the work that I do sure. but uh this is one where I was like oh I'm really uncomfortable with this like I'm not ready yeah hey and that time might come you can still send the letter there's still right like you know still yeah. have that chance if it ever feels right but I think it makes a ton of sense to yeah be concerned about how that might be received on their end, given what we know about the expectations of intimacy. I think it makes me sad. Like this makes me sad that you love someone so dearly, but because of society, because of the way that we've structured relationships, at least within our Western context, we can't even express that love and feel that fully. Like even that not being able to send the letter, I feel like is like a squelching internally of our own experience. Like I want all of us to be able to feel like, yes, I can express my full love and care for all people. Yeah. But there, therein lies the work for me yeah. at least. <laughs> and all of us, let me be clear. I mean, this is like, I am so with you in this work of trying to figure out. Cause I mean, the levels of social conditioning is it's, it's the water we swim in as fish. And like, we sometimes don't even know that we are taking it in. And so at least for me, it's been something like, even I had a really tough breakup a while back where once I broke up, I was like, Oh, I'm single. But like, I don't even think that aligns with relationship anarchy concepts, right? Because I'm never truly single. I have multiple other relationships. And even that frame shift alone helped me to feel tremendously better from this, oh my God, I'm so alone and I'm so alone in the world. Oh no. To like, oh my God, I have such beautiful people in my life that I love. And it gives me a whole different feeling of what my experience is on this world. So I think it's powerful, this work that we're doing. Yeah. I love that. And hopefully it made the, that transition out of that relationship easier. It did. Because I know, you know, yeah, it's so easy to feel like steeped in that loneliness and Yeah. I want to hold a little bit of space as we come to the end of our time. Is there anything that's lingering that maybe we didn't talk about that you wanted to bring up before I transition to a closing question? I don't think so. Yeah. This has been fun this far. I'm I'm enjoying it. Uh, So then the closing question is, what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Something that I wish people knew was normal was the degree to which we require touch from just about anybody and all different kinds of touch. Yes. I just started doing more like hands-on touch in my yoga classes for this exact reason of like, how can I support the world in receiving more platonic, healthy, safe touch? You know, I think we forget how much we need that, especially again, here's the relationship anarchy, right? Like, pinning all of that down to our sexual and romantic partnerships and not feeling free to express that sort of love, hugging, you know, gentle caressing, the sorts of love that we all need from our other relationships too. Yeah. Handholding. I think platonic handholding is, needs to make a big comeback. I do substitute teaching and for whatever reason, I really seem to like middle school kids and 
I see it a fair amount there and I have for a while and I'm just like, all right, mm. kids are all right. They're going to be okay. <laughs> they are definitely, you know, like they're modeling for me, even for all of us. Like, you know, I see platonic handholding on the regular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, I don't know if it'll make a comeback with the adults, but <laughs> hopefully the youngins will teach us. <laughs> Absolutely. And at least you and I can be a part of like, Setting the example and making that happen. Yeah. 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 This has been fun to me. Anytime that we can talk about mindfulness, sexuality, slowing down, relationships, rethinking what those mean. Like, this is like my cream at the crop. Perfect. Lovely conversation. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the Anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.